1: Yo, technology,
2: what is it all about? There's certainly a lot of consumers who are just excited to try it, you know, partly because of the novelty. But there's also probably a large number of consumers who are cautious and concerned and think it's weird and think it's sci-fi. And I don't think you persuade them that it's not by trying to hide all of the science and trying to make it sound as natural as possible. You know, ultimately our job as an industry is to say, yeah, like it is pretty sci-fi, but it's like actually amazing that we can grow real meat without the animals. And let's make that fun and safe and, and do that through, again, transparency and honesty.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson. And this week, we're talking about burgers, but not just any burgers, lab grown burgers. Now, you might be asking, why are you doing that? Well, in the past two weeks, not one but two cultivated meat startups received FDA approval to start selling their products to the public. Both of them, um, Upside Foods and Eat Just, are starting with lab-grown chicken, and they are doing so in upscale restaurants. In other words, they're starting small, not least because their products are still crazy expensive. You know, they're kind of coming down from many tens of thousands of dollars to probably hundreds. Nobody knows exactly where they've got to by now, companies are pretty are typically pretty elusive when it comes to putting exact numbers on product costs the point is though that meat without slaughter this idea that you can grow in a kind of bioreactor you know a brewer's vat meat rather than slaughtering billions of animals is ever so slowly percolating into the market um, after decades of fundamental research the question is can we make enough of it, of this actual meat, not, you know, plant-based meat, but real meat, can we make enough of it cheaply enough to make a den in the industrial agricultural agriculture monolith that is destroying rainforests, slaughtering billions of animals, and belching out up to a quarter of global CO2 emissions? So, to tackle all of that, I reached out to Josh March at Sci-Fi Foods to talk about it all. So... We had Josh on the podcast last year. He's the founder of Sci-Fi Foods, and they are working on growing ground beef. And a few months back, I went to their facility in Hayward, not so far from me here in Oakland, and actually tried one of their sliders, and I can report it was good. It did not taste like veggie mush or a salty hockey puck. It actually tasted like a burger. It tasted like beef. At the moment, it still costs about $100 for one of those burgers, but the price is coming down. And so I wanted to talk to him about charting the path to that the $1 burger, which is his goal. If it's possible, the challenges that lie ahead, and why probably of the more than 150 companies attempting to pull this off with, you know, chicken, fish, beef, lamb, pork, etc., why the vast majority will fail. So if you like me. If you care about the planet or both, I think you're going to get a lot out of this. So here he is, Josh March of Sci Fi Foods. Enjoy. Thank you for taking the time. You were on the pod last year. Lots happened since then in your kind of universe. I wanted to talk to you because in the past, I think it's two weeks or so, two, cultivated meat companies clean meat companies synthetic meat companies whatever you want to call them actually got USDA approval and they're starting to kind of offer their products initially in restaurants so they're kind of getting them out in the wild and i just thought it was an interesting moment to kind of reconnect with you because you guys are one trying to do the same with a a bit of a different approach and it really gets to the heart of whether this is going to work because it gets down to cost and scale i presume those approvals are really good for you guys generally or as the for the industry and also understand kind of where you guys are in terms of your process both with the actual growing of the meat and getting it closer to the market
2: ultimately it was a really important time for the industry and and a really exciting milestone There'd always been this question i think for a lot of observers of the industry is you know is regulatory going to be this big challenging pain points and is it going to prevent companies from getting to market or is it going to take years and years and going to be really, really challenging? And ultimately, for us and others in the industry, you know, we've been speaking with the FDA, we've been speaking with the USDA, they've been super engaged and super supportive and pretty clear, reasonably clear as much as they can be, given the you know, how, just how early the industry is. But we always felt like there was actually pretty minimal regulatory risk in the U.S. And it would always be relatively straightforward for us to get to market. And these approvals just demonstrate the truth of that, really, to the rest of the world. Right, right. Um, Yeah, because for a lot of people watching it, they're like, yeah, yeah, obviously you're going to say that, you're biased. But until we actually uh, see it happen, we won't fully believe it. Now, no, it's clear, yeah, the FDA and the USDA are supportive and are willing to approve cultivated meat products for sale in the US, which is super exciting. There's time involved, you've got to do a lot of work, you've got to meet the food safety regulations, and you've got to demonstrate you have a facility and a process that that really delivers and can deliver safe products at the end of the day. But as long as you do that, then you'll get approval. And I think that's what what people want to see.
1: And so where are you guys in the process? Because I was there, gosh, I think it was earlier this year, I tried one of your sliders. It was like, You know whatever about the size of a normal slider and i think you said at the time that was that was about a hundred bucks which obviously that is not sustainable for a mass market product but um you had mentioned then that you're on the way to getting to a dollar a burger so just wondering how that glide path is going is it gliding yeah, well, you know, the slight
2: buzzing that you may be able to hear in the background is the sound of our pilot plant, uh, our first production facility being mm. constructed. Technically, not a pilot plant, it is actually a commercial production facility. And that's being designed and is being built from the ground up in order to meet FDA and USDA requirements. Mm. And that facility will actually be ready by the end of this year, which is super exciting. Mm. We're also, at the same time, working on completing all of the things that we need to do in order to fulfill and complete our FDA submission. Our goal is also to have that done by the end of this year. Together, those should set us up to get full approval by the end of next year and be ready to actually start selling our ground beef and our burger products end of next year, which is, which is really exciting. Our plan is to be able to sell, uh, produce those those burgers for about $10 a burger out of our, of our first small-scale facility. That's obviously on the journey down to getting to eventually dollar at kind of full full scale but
1: we think ten dollars is a great starting point point. and i think it's important just to kind of draw out how you're getting to ten dollars because i think you know if you go back whatever a decade that first burger that first science experiment of like hey this actually is possible to grow meat outside of an animal um i think that was three hundred thirty thousand dollars or something like that it was eaten on the live on the bbc etc Getting to $10 dollars in a decade, that's kind of like one of those trajectories you hear you we all write about and see all the time in tech. But how are you guys approaching it? How do you get there? Because it feels like the whole industry has got this point where like, okay, we're kind of cracking this core science. Now it's getting to scale and cost, which are related. and you guys have a bit of a different approach.
2: In some ways, it's, it's exciting to look at a graph of something that's really expensive, getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and easy to uh, extrapolate out and say, great, well, everyone, you know, the price is going to be super cheap. But, you know, biology is complex and Moore's law doesn't apply perfectly. And there is path dependency. There are many different paths that you can take to drop costs a certain amount, but then some of those will hit physical barriers and some of them will hit them faster than others. And so it's really, really important to have a good understanding of what is the path that can actually get you all the way down to a dollar. And do you understand how that can happen? And we're a little contrarian in, in the industry because we think that's a pretty narrow path. There is a path, but it's a pretty narrow path. Mm. And I think there are a lot of approaches that people are taking that we don't believe will be successful in getting all the way down to cost parity with conventional needs, at least not in the near future, in the next five to 10 years. And there are two main parts to that. The most important technological one is about actually changing the behaviour of, of cells. You know, ultimately, all of the the reason why growing animal cells is expensive is because of the behaviour of those cells. Mm-hmm. It's the, the density of the cells you can grow at, it's the growth rate, it's what what the cells need to be around and in, in in order for them to grow and you know all the kind of complexities around that. And ultimately all of those things can be changed. And we live in an age today, wasn't possible a decade ago when the first burger was born, but today with tools, especially like CRISPR Mm. and our understanding of how to do high throughput engineering and use lab automation and machine learning, it is possible for us to run these massive engineering cycles where we're shifting cell behavior and solving these problems. And ultimately we think that approach is really the only approach to develop cell lines that can be grown cheaply at scale. Mm. And then you can combine that with using very simple manufacturing technology, simple bioreactors, and minimal downstream processing. So that's really the most essential. And then the other key part for for the first products is that the first products need to be blended. They need to combine cultivated cells with plant-based ingredients. There's a number of reasons for that. Part of it is obviously decreasing the cost and the capex involved. But another big part of it is, is around the manufacturing process. And if you're trying to get your cells to provide structure and texture, you know, turn your cells into 3D structured muscle tissue, then that's actually really, really complex. And there are lots of exciting research projects happening for how to do that at scale, but none of those have been proven out yet. And the technology just doesn't really exist today to do that at low cost and large scale. Again, I think that situation is going to be different in a decade. And there is is some really exciting novel bioreactors being developed. But with technology today, it's just not feasible. For us, it's the combination of those two approaches which, which make it possible.
1: We should pause here just, and you can tell me whether this is my crude explanation of how this works generally is correct. But basically you take the way that we kind of quote grow these cells yourselves and many others is you take a punch biopsy of in your case a cow you extract the stem cells and then you put them in this kind of bath of gatorade for cells amino acids sugars whatever it may be and they multiply and multiply and multiply multiply and then you from that you get meat actual meat cells is that correct that is correct and that
2: that's a high level of the process now in between from when you take that initial biopsy of cells and when you start growing them and producing them for meat you need to optimize those cells so that they are happy growing in a big steel tank instead of in a cow right or a pig or whatever it is right and that's where the technical differentiation starts to come in
1: well you mentioned that and i think it's worth drawing out so uh, the way that you guys are doing it is through these kind of high throughput approaches using CRISPR to kind of turn certain genes off and, and kind of manipulate them in a way to do what you want them to do. That is not how others are doing it. Correct. There's two parts to that.
2: Most companies in the space are relying on kind of evolutionary approaches, where you keep growing the cells in in different conditions. And you're hoping that there's random mutations. Genetic or epigenetic changes that the cells kind of adapt to growing and to in, in different conditions.
1: So, kind of throwing things against the wall, but putting them in lots of different conditions and variables to kind of try to guide them to what you want to do, basically.
2: Yeah, and basically hoping the cells go through random mutation,
1: whether that's genetic or epigenetic mutation, to get to where you want it to go. And the getting where you want to go means doubling extremely quickly, effectively.
2: I mean that's part of it, but it basically means optimizing. It's getting a cell line that is really happy growing well in a a bioreactor instead of growing in a muscle. Right. And growing to high cell density with low-cost inputs. So that's basically the default approach that most companies take more and more companies are realizing that that's not really sufficient to develop cell lines mm. that have the KPIs you actually need to get to an affordable product. And you know, if you look at precision fermentation, people have been using microbes, yeast and bacteria to make food products for, for decades now. And the best practice in that field over decades of experience is that if you wanna create an affordable product and commercially relevant KPIs, you need to use engineering to shift the behavior of the cell Mm. and relying on random evolution and hoping for to be random mutations to get what you want just isn't really effective to get all the way down the cost curve. And you need to use engineering. Now that approach was always very challenging in cultivating meat. It was just very difficult to engineer animal cells. That's no longer the case with CRISPR. And so more and more companies are recognizing that, okay, you do actually now need to use engineering approaches, Mm. but again. Biology is really complex, you know, even with the most advanced AI tools on the planet and a room full of MIT PhDs, you still can't predict that if we make this specific change that it will result in this specific behavior shift. You may have vague ideas, you know, you may know that these pathways are relevant and there's all these different genes involved, but you don't know that one specific change will get the effect you want. You know, biological pathways are very resilient, and sometimes it takes multiple changes. Yeah. Proteins can be involved in multiple pathways, so you change one thing and it can mess up other things. And so again, the lesson from fermentation, industrial fermentation, precision fermentation, and, and, and biopharma is that you have to experiment with a large number of changes to figure out what works. And that's why we built a platform that allows us not to just make one change, but to make hundreds of different changes and then quickly test and figure out which of those changes are actually effective. And we really see that as as the essential technological step in order to shift the behavior of cells and develop, in our case, beef cells that can actually be grown at a cost that allows us to get to a $1 burger. You know, if you want an affordable product, we just see, see that as an absolutely essential step. And that's something that is pretty unique to us in the industry.
1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So there are more than 150, I think was the last count, cultivated meat or synthetic biology startups trying to make every, you know every fish, fowl, and land animal you can think of If you guys are unique in that approach, you mentioned it earlier, you don't think, you know, a lot of these other approaches are basically, they're just not going to work. How do you see that playing out? Because that's 150 companies, we're talking about billions of dollars, a lot of big bets being made on some of these companies. Is this going to be a classic bubble that bursts and most of these companies go away? There's a low success rate for any startup, yeah, yeah,
2: right. For sure. And when you then move into a biomanufactured product, that failure rate increases. Even more mm-hmm. right because it's challenging to develop cell lines and scale up a process. and I think cultivated meat will have those exact same challenges. I mean out of those 150, there's only really a dozen or so that have raised meaning what well, yeah you know, meaningful capital right kind of over 25 million dollars of, of capital, which is still you know a drop in the bucket again for developing a biomanufactured product and, and scaling it up. You know I've no doubt that, that other people will figure out a path as well. Right, some of those companies have raised enough money that they've got enough time, hopefully if they manage their resources well, hopefully they'll establish it. But I do think it will be a a very small number of companies that are able to be successful. And success is not just, you know, selling in one restaurant, but it's can you actually produce meaningful scales of meat at an affordable price, I think it's going to be a small number of people who do that. And I think there'll be a a very big technological moat for those companies.
1: That gets to the question, right? Because when you look at, if you step back and look at what you guys are trying to do, we slaughter billions and billions and billions of animals. If you're just thinking about chickens and beef into the many billions, I think it's something like 25% of our emissions come from industrial agriculture. A huge swathe of the planet is basically dedicated to soybeans and other basically animal stuff that we feed to animals so that we can kill them and eat them. So it's a big prize if you can upset that apple cart and be like, actually, we don't need to do all that. We can just build a bunch of giant factories that will pump this stuff out. Do you see that as like realistic where we sit today? Or are there a couple miracles that still need to happen for that to actually be even remotely possible? Because obviously, the prize is huge. But as we're talking, the the obstacles are pretty tall, you know, first a few things. When you look at meat consumption around the world, meat
2: consumption has risen dramatically in the, yeah. next, in the last 30 years, and it's forecast to continue rising dramatically as the world population is getting wealthier, and demanding to eat more and more meat meat consumption is gonna more than double in the next 30 years. It's already a trillion dollar market. So how can we meet that big protein gap? And unfortunately, right now, the answer is cut down more of the rainforest to make space for cattle. 80% of deforestation of the Amazon is related to the cattle industry in some way and throw billions more animals into factory farming. And so we really have to figure out a better way of meeting that gap. I don't think we'll be replacing every single chicken and cow on the planet anytime soon, right? But it's how can we make sure that we're providing for as much of what people want to eat and the growth in what people want to eat without having to just destroy the planet along the way. And I think cultivated meat will play a really important role as part of that. I do think eventually the future, but it is a distant future, Mm. is that cultivated meat will be just the default majority of meat that people eat. But I think it'll take a while for that to come. But the other part of this, I think, you know, if you look at solar, I think solar is a great example. Yeah. Look at solar deployment. 20, 30 years ago, it was tiny, it was happening, it was tiny, and it was expensive. And then every year, it got cheaper and cheaper and larger and larger scale. And now there is, you know, trillions of dollars of deployment into solar every year, right? It really kind of accelerates over time. And so, Yes, when you when you stand here and look at the the sum total of of meat being produced and how much additional manufacturing and biomanufacturing capacity would have to be built to replace it or or you know, supplement it in double, mm. it's it's a lot, and that's not going to happen instantly. It will take time, and it will keep building and building and building, and eventually it will happen. You know, some things go slowly and then go very very quickly. Yeah. As Bill Gates liked to say, you know, people often overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And I think that's the kind of timeline that we're thinking about when you think about the big worldwide impact that
1: we can have. You know, there's been a lot of talk out here around the Inflation Reduction Act. It's maybe up to a trillion dollars of tax cuts and subsidies for all kinds of different, quote unquote, climate tech things, initiatives, etc. Where does clean meat fall in that is there a, a tailwind from the government that is discernible?
2: Yeah, there is actually. It's, it's actually been quite exciting. Um, you know, the White House has issued multiple executive orders around the bioeconomy and biomanufacturing, and they've specifically called out cultivated meat as one of the areas mm. that the agencies need to focus on. There's movement within the USDA to make sure some of the grant funding and, and loan guarantees for building out facilities can be supportive of cultivated meat. There's been activity around the Farm Bill in that, and you know the Inflation Reduction Act specifically gave $350 billion to the Loan Programs Office uh, as part of the DOE, who do government-backed loans for manufacturing in the US that can mm. have a climate impact. This is the same department that gave the $400 million-plus loan to Tesla to build their Fremont factory. They've specifically said that alt-protein is you know, in their wheelhouse and something they're interested in, in supporting. You know, it's still early days, but there's a lot of activity from multiple different arms of the government indicating that they want to support cultivated meat and they want to support building out advanced biomanufacturing, including cultivated meat in the U.S.
1: Is there anything that keeps you up at night when you think about this, especially as we start with Upside Foods and Good Meat being the first two to get approval in the United States? And obviously, it's super limited right now. It's basically Michelin star restaurants that are rolling this out. But as this starts to percolate out into the market, that first time there's a story where, oh, I got food poisoning because uh, it's this is lab-grown meat. Oh, this is terrible. We need to stop. You know, are you worried about those kind of events? There's always going to be unforeseen events that are going to throw up some issue, and I don't know how real those will be or or not. It kind of, in a way, doesn't matter. But how big is that risk when you think about actually moving from the science experiment phase to getting this out in the wild? It's ha- always
2: hard to know, right? You never know what could happen. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, the risk of those things is actually much, much lower with cultivated meat than, than it is mm. for conventional meat. You know, it's produced in a much cleaner environment, manufactured in a cleaner environment. It doesn't have the same issues around food safety that, that conventional meat does that's, that's produced in a slaughterhouse. So in many ways, you should expect less of that. Obviously, you can't always account for human error, especially once it's a food product that's in consumers' hands or chefs' hands, and how Mm. are they handling it and what are they doing with it. But I think ultimately our job as an industry is to just be very transparent and authentic and to build trust in what we're doing and why we're doing it and the importance of what we're doing. And I think that trust is the most important thing. And I think if you're open with people and, and build trust and authenticity,
1: then you have more leeway hence your name, which we discussed before of you. I mean, you got, you're called Sci-Fi Foods. You're not hiding the ball. Yeah, we're not, we're not nothing to see here, Foods.
2: Uh, <laughs> which I think is kind of the approach that some of the other companies are taking. And I think that, you know, there's too much momentum around this being lab grown meat. We know that the meat lobby will come after it hard for being frank and meat. Yep. There's certainly a lot of consumers who are just excited to try it, you know, partly because of the novelty, but there's also probably a large number of consumers who are cautious and concerned and think it's weird and think it's sci-fi. And I don't think you persuade them that it's not by trying to hide all of the science and trying to make it sound as natural as possible. You know, ultimately our job as an industry is to say, yeah, like it is pretty sci-fi, but it's like actually amazing that we can grow real meat without the animals. And let's make that fun and safe and and do that through, again, transparency and honesty.
1: And has there been anything as you kind of, you're building out your pilot plant, as we can hear in the background, any kind of like, uh, for lack of a better term, oh shit moments you've had in the past year, where like, oh no, or like you know bad days where you're like, oh maybe this isn't working, or oh god, we've got to pivot and try something different, or whatever it may be. We've been very lucky. You know, our R and D has made amazing progress, mm-hmm. and so far we've
2: delivered basically everything we've, we've said we can deliver. My co-founder always likes to tell me I shouldn't get used to it because, you know, R&D is usually (laughs) more challenging in some ways. You know, but ultimately, I think it's a challenging fundraising environment at the moment for everyone. Plant-based meat is really going through the kind of trough of disillusionment, valley of death, whatever you want to call it at, at the moment. As you said, there are lots of cultivated meat companies, and I think a lot of, you know, a number of them will struggle and fail. We've already seen one failure this year. Who is that? It was new age uh, meats. Right. Yeah. You know, I think all of those together can just cause a kind of negative part pull on the industry, right? So. Mm. For us, it's about just kind of turtling down, keeping our heads down, doing great work and delivering, consistently delivering exactly what we say we're going to deliver and make sure we have an awesome product at the end of the day, which ultimately is all that matters, right? Do you have a great tasting burger that people want to eat? Yeah. But that's the main negativity. And I think there'll probably be more of that coming with, with companies struggling, partly related to the industry and partly not, right? Partly just the general environment that we're
1: in. Well, I was going to say, is there a reason why we're in this trough? Is it just simply stepping back, looking at what's happening? in venture capital. If you're not in AI or some bits of climate tech, you know life is tough for everybody. If it, is it that simple, or there's are there things specific to meat that have made it even more difficult? well i think there was a lot of hype around plant-based meat yeah a lot of that hype was driven
2: by a few things that that didn't kind of pan out some of it was the health stuff some of it was just like the lack of conventional meat available in the pandemic There was all kinds of reasons mm. in the traditional hype cycle there was a lot of hype and it kind of grew up and and it's kind of flattened out and ultimately a lot of plant-based meat isn't very good right there are yeah. actually some good products out there that are continuing to grow better than the others but overall plant-based meat has really struggled to move much beyond the kind of vegan vegetarian market. Lots of lots of people tried it, there was lots of interest, yeah, yeah. but then the, the repeat purchase rate just hasn't been very good. Mm. Ultimately, when you actually survey people and say, why aren't you continuing to buy it? Like almost 90% of them say taste, right? It just doesn't taste good enough. People don't wanna pay more for a product that tastes worse, especially in an inflationary environment where you know money's feeling a little tighter. And so I think, I think that's a big part of it. And then a lot of the hype was around products, again, that just didn't end up being great products. So I do think there is a lot more growth to be seen in the conventional plant-based meat market. But ultimately, I think people wanna eat real meat. And that's why I've always been excited about
1: cultivated meat. Well, I look forward to checking in again in the next, I don't know, six months or a year as you get going on the pilot plant and um, prove the pudding is in the eating. And that feels like where we're getting yeah, now we actually know what people really think, right? Because you, you can ask people on a survey, but until until they've
2: actually got a piece of food in their hands, like you don't really know how they're gonna react to it.
1: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Josh for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors. I'll be back next week. Um, I am looking at taking a couple weeks off in August. Um, taking a big trip with the family. So I'll probably have you know have a brief August pause. But I'll, I'll give more details on that in the next week or two. But I will be back next week. And um, that's it. So if you want to find me, I'm on thetimes.co.uk. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday You can find me on Twitter, at dannyfortson. You can even find me on threads. That's right. I joined at drfortson, at doctorfortson. I'm not a doctor, obviously, but my middle name is Robert, so there you go. So I'm trying, you know, messing around with that as well. Anyhow, that is it for me this week. Thank you. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.